to the Wild Wisdom Podcast with Dr. Patricia Mills. I'm Dr. Patricia. This podcast is for people who want to transform their health, restore their hormones, and reconnect to their body's natural wisdom. Hi, I'm Dr. Patricia. I'm a Canadian medical doctor, published author, internationally recognized researcher, and passionate advocate for your health. Here, we'll explore the intersection between ancient wisdom and cutting-edge science, distilling the essence of true health into practical steps you can take. Wild wisdom is instinctive knowledge in action. Thanks for making this part of your day. Food sensitivities. So many of us are experiencing problems with food sensitivities affecting either our gut health or our whole body health. And the question is, what are the food sensitivity tests that are accurate and that are worth spending your money on? Hi, uh, welcome to the Wild Wisdom Show. I'm Dr. Patricia Mills, a medical doctor with a different spin on women's health. And I'm here to take very complex information Break it down into understandable pieces that you can action out right away for immediate results in your health. And today we're going to be talking about are food sensitivities accurate and are they worth the cost? And I'm going to be discussing seven tests, uh, seven different tests that are available right now that you can either purchase or perform at home or get done through a uh, doctor like a functional medicine doctor, a naturopathic doctor or other doctors. And it's important because you can end up spending a lot of money on these tests and they can take you down a really bad rabbit hole in terms of um, making you think that you have a sensitivity to food when in fact you don't. And then you end up on an overly restricted diet, which is not good for your health or missing an important food sensitivity that you do have. And for, you know, you actually have these health concerns that are showing up and you're thinking, oh, it can't be related to this food that I'm eating because this test told me I'm fine with this food. So very, very important to figure out. If you're joining me live through my free Facebook group for women, Wild Wisdom for Women with Dr. Patricia Mills, please feel free to put in your comments and ask your questions. It's one of the many benefits from being in the group. And hello, welcome, and I'm so happy to see you here. All right, so let's get started. One of the first tests I'm going to discuss is the Viome test. Now, you may or may not have heard of this. It's very interesting. I've had this done myself. And basically, um, they're using the technology where they're looking at your stool test. So they take a test of your stool and they analyze it uh, for the DNA of the gut microbiome. So the gut microbiome are those organisms inside of your gut, like the bacteria and the viruses and the parasites and the fungi. And they uh, analyze the DNA to see which ones are there and how are they working inside of your gut and what do they like to eat and what do they not like to eat. And based on those results, they provide you with this printout of the foods that your gut microbiome like to eat and what they don't like to eat. And they make recommendations for what you should and shouldn't eat based on those results. And what I have to say is that by the time I did the biome, I had already done the um, a few of the other food sensitivity testing because I like to experiment and find out for myself. And I had already done a blood test for um, IgG levels, which we will discuss as well. And I had already done an elimination diet. And I knew for sure that one of the foods that I had an extreme food intolerance to was dairy. Any kind of dairy was a big no-no for me. And I knew this definitely because if I cut it out and I reintroduced it back in, 
I would get skin rashes and bloating and digestive issues and, you know, problems with my weight, water retention. So I knew it wasn't good for me. And when I was very surprised when I received back the tests of biome telling me that my gut microbiome likes to eat dairy and therefore I should include dairy in my diet. So I know that this is an N of one, as in it's a one person experiment. However, it was a very telling one for me because there's a difference between what your gut microbiome likes to eat and what your body is comfortable with being exposed to at that time. Now, food sensitivities can change over time, unlike food allergies, which once you develop, you know, like a peanut allergy, um, it's pretty much for life, right? There are some things you can do to try to improve those, but those are pretty strong. Food sensitivities, on the other hand, are these delayed sensitivities, um, and they show up after about four to seven days, maybe a few hours after eating, within four to seven days after eating. They tend to be more mild than the um, food allergies, and they can show up anywhere in the body, just like the food allergy can affect your brain, your skin, your joints, your muscles, your gut. Um, it can impact your weight, your energy levels. So it's important to identify them. And what I did learn from this biome test, which was important knowledge, is that what my gut microbiome likes to eat is very different from what my body is enjoying being exposed to at that time. And at that time, I knew that I was not doing well in dairy. So the biome test may be good for other things, um, like determining maybe the status of your gut microbiome, um, and within the foods that you can tolerate and that you don't have food sensitivities to, the foods that your gut microbiome also likes to eat. But that's assuming that your gut microbiome is in a healthy state, right? Because you want to feed the good guys and not the bad guys. So in my opinion, it's still early days for the Viome test. I think there's a lot of potential there, but it's not something that if I was short on money, uh, I would invest in. And I would use the results with um, caution. So I hate to say that because they're an excellent company with a really great um, mission and really great intentions. But for me, it really did not pan out as being useful. All right. So the other test uh, that I reviewed for this um, talk today is the applied kinesiology or muscle testing. So you may or may not have heard of this, but basically muscle testing is um, the procedure itself is you're either holding the food that you're wanting to test in your hand, or if you're lying down, it's on your chest. Sometimes some practitioners uh, will even put it like near you, but not touching you. And then they will do this thing where they uh, will ask you to, for example, stretch your arm out uh, to the side and to, um, and I, I, I'm, I'm not a muscle tester myself, and I'm sure someone who does muscle testing would watch this and say, you're not doing it right. But the principle is that, when you are in a positive state and you're um, surrounded by positive things and you're thinking positive thoughts um, and you're eating foods that are good for you or you're near foods that are good for you, your muscle strength is full. Um, so when someone pushes down on your arm, you should be able to resist that with full strength. And the theory goes that when you are exposed to foods that are not um, good for you, whether it's I, I when I initially saw this, I thought it was that they gave the food to you to eat and then they would test it. But no, it's actually you're you're holding it or it's on you or near you. And that proximity of the food is supposed to negatively interact with your um, bodily systems and the way that they're it's all interconnected and cause you to be weak, even though you're trying to be strong. So they they sense a relative weakness on the muscle testing. Um, so, you know, I, I try to. Keep an open mind and um, 
I looked into the research for this for sure, because I didn't want to say that, you know, this sounds weird, um, but is it actually weird? Sometimes weird things work. And uh, the only thing I could find um, that was useful for this was a test on 20 subjects where they did uh, blinded testing. So the subjects did not know what foods were being tested on them or around them. And they tested various different kinds of foods. And the practitioners uh, in the study were trained to apply this kind of test because the caveat with this testing is that, you know, not anybody can do it. You do have to have training in the procedure so as to try to minimize all the potential variables. The biggest variable in this being um, the bias of the tester, right? So there's, if the tester is, for example, testing your um, reaction to sugar or dairy, and they know that a lot of people have problems with sugar and dairy, um, their internal bias might cause them to feel like you should have a reaction to it and subconsciously have, uh, alter the result consciously, purposely, but usually not purposefully. They're not trying to do this on purpose, but subconsciously alter the result of the test. So there's a huge potential for um, the tester bias. And also, if the person is seeing the food that's being tested, which is normally the case, um, there's a huge potential for their own bias against that food. So this test, this research study on 20 subjects, tried to eliminate the potential for this bias where the food was blinded. And uh, what they found was that the results were just not consistent. They couldn't reproduce it. You, you know, at one point they would have a sensitivity to, uh, uh, let's say, dairy. And then on repeat testing, it wouldn't show up again. So essentially, at this point in time, I would have to say that I would not um, engage the services of someone to do an applied kinesiology muscle testing um, for my food sensitivities. So for me, that's a no. Um, so the next, and again, uh, if you have any questions or comments about that, and, you know, my, my apologies if you are a muscle tester, um, you know, I understand that everyone's very passionate about what they do. Uh, I have to rely on the research for this one, especially since it is a bit hard to rely on the um, consistency of the results, given that it, there can be such variability based on the bias of the tester and the person being tested. Um, so the other test is what's called cytotoxicity testing. And this one's a little bit more scientific. Um, and what the test is, is that they take a sample of the blood and they take the white blood cells from the blood, they isolate that out, and then they put it under a microscope. And then they add the food components to that solution underneath the microscope. And they observe how the white blood cells react. Now. Um, I still had a significant amount of skepticism to this particular way of testing uh, because the food sensitivity uh, does not necessarily involve a change in shape of the white blood cell. And also um, the white blood cell reactions that we're expecting to see because food sensitivities, just to rewind a little bit, um, they are um, caused by changes in the function of your immune system. Your immune system is what recognizes foreign invaders. So the food is a foreign invader that's being recognized by the immune system as being foreign and not belonging to the body. So it mounts an attack and that's what results in the food sensitivity. However, uh, and the white blood cells are a part of that immune system that are recognizing the problem with the food. However, you will not be able to see the changes that occur in the white blood cell with a microscope. 
it requires more sensitive um, instruments that at this point in time are only available in research laboratories. And the thing is that white blood cells naturally change shape. So it's not, they don't change shape just in response to um, food allergens. They, they change sh uh, shape naturally. Uh, so you don't know if the change in shape is due to the food allergens or not. And you cannot actually visually see if that white blood cell, for example, is releasing antibodies with the use of a microscope. So again, I would not, I would not spend my money or my time on cytotoxicity testing because there's better tests than this that are more reliable and specific for food sensitivities. The next test that we're going to talk about is one that um, I've heard about more often uh, in terms of people being interested in whether or not this would be a good test. And this is called the electrodermal testing, uh, otherwise known as biomeridian bio or vega testing. And essentially, it's testing the electric currents in your skin. Again, as you are holding a food, maybe some people will test it as you're eating it. Um, and what it is, is uh, what they're measuring is the device they're using is a galvanometer, which measures the electric currents in your skin. And the concept, the theory behind it is that when you eat a food that isn't good for you, your body reacts either mentally, emotionally, or physically. We don't know at what level that reaction is. And it causes a change in the electric conduction in your skin. And that can be measured by the galvanometer. Now, what's interesting about this is that uh, when I became a researcher, I trained with one of the uh, best known uh, uh, researchers in the world uh, on the autonomic nervous system, which is the nervous system that is responsible for controlling this electrical current response to a significant degree. And I actually had an opportunity to work with this device in um, people who were both healthy and people with spinal cord injury, because when you have an injury to that nervous system, your electrical current responses uh, change uh, depending on the kind of spinal cord injury that you have. So I had a significant amount of exposure to the specific device, not for food sensitivity testing, but for testing of the autonomic nervous system, which controls your body's um, stress response. And the idea is that when you're eating a food uh, that causes stress in your body or you're holding a food that causes stress in your body, that that would change your electric currents. And what I can say to that is that um, based on my experience with this in terms of the psychological uh, uses of the, um, of the electrical current testing, as well as the testing for um, the intactness of the nervous system and the nervous system response to stress, what I can say is that this is not a reliable test because it's like it's also this similar to what's used for lie detector tests. And as you know, it really depends on your own state of nervousness or anxiety uh, during the test. So if you're, for example, let's say that they're testing you for gluten. So they put a nice piece of delicious um, bread in your hand. And you're thinking, oh, no, I don't want to have a food sensitivity to this. I don't, you know, I'm so worried. I don't want to have a problem with this. I love bread. That will change your result. Other things that will change the result is how much pressure that the um, practitioner is applying uh, uh, through the device on the skin. So you have to have a very good practitioner. It'll also change with whether you're breathing in deeply, breathing out, or holding your breath. 
So again, it's not a very reliable test. Uh, and when we would use it in research, we would go to extreme measures to try to eliminate all of the potential variables, including temperature. Like we had to make sure that the, the person was at the right temperature because the results could change with temperature, temperature of the body, temperature of the room, um, the anxiety levels of the person, the um, techniques of the practitioner. So again, um, it's not reliable and it could potentially, um, and, if, and if it's like a food, for example, that you're like, oh, I'm pretty sure I'm okay with this, you know, you might be able to calm your nervous system down enough that you don't get a, a positive response to a food that you do have a food sensitivity to. So again, I am not a big fan for the electrodermal testing as a result of this. And you may hear of it as biomeridian testing or Vega testing or any test that measures the electric current in your skin as you're being exposed to potential trigger foods. The next test that we're going to talk about is the hair analysis. Now, what's interesting about this is that I actually also have a lot of experience with hair analysis, believe it or not, from a couple of different ways. Uh, one is that I did some research on um, the use of hair analysis as a test for other neurological conditions I was studying at the time, like for in my case, it was spasticity. I was curious if it was a reliable test. Um, and what the hair analysis test does is that it, you take a sample of your hair and what you wanna do is you want the sample to be um, with near your scalp, about an inch or so of that hair near your scalp. And that reflects about three months worth of hair growth. So you're taking an average of the mineral content in your hair over the last three months. And what it tells you is the content of minerals that you do want to be in your body, like magnesium and zinc and boron, manganese. And it'll tell you the content of minerals that you don't want to be in your body, like lead, cadmium, arsenic. It'll also tell you things like sodium and chlorine. And there's some science to show that when you look at ratios of those, like how much sodium you have compared to potassium or magnesium, it's supposed to give you some indication as to the state of your body in terms of how it's been over the last three months. And they look at it for things like how have your adrenal glands been functioning, your kidney functioning, and those sorts of things. Um, the most reliable use for hair tissue mineral analysis is um, when they use it for testing of heavy metals for things like lead and mercury. Everything else is a little bit less accurate and, and um, it's very hard in the research to determine to determine how to use the results. So often you need to do the research on a large group of people and compare the results between different groups of people that have been exposed to different things, for example. Or let's say you want to do a comparison of a group of people with food sensitivities versus a group of people without food sensitivities and see if there's differences. But what I can tell you is that I've done hair tissue mineral analysis on myself because I was curious about this, um, about this kind of studies. When I looked at the results, I also did a um, course on hair tissue mineral analysis. And what I found was that it's, it's extremely limited um, for certain things. And it definitely would not tell you anything about a specific food sensitivity. So, for example, let's say you had a dairy sensitivity, but you don't have a gluten sensitivity. There's absolutely no research to show that there would be a specific kind of pattern of minerals showing up in your hair because you have a sensitivity to one 
and not the other. And the thing is, you have to remember, this is like an average of what's been happening in your hair over the last three months. And also, depending on the status of your health, your body will decide how much of a mineral it wants to get rid of or not. So for example, let's say, let's say that you're deficient in magnesium, your body will hold on to magnesium and won't excrete a lot of it out in your hair. Um, let's say you're taking a lot of magnesium, your body will get rid of a lot of magnesium and you'll see a lot of magnesium in your hair. That has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not you are experiencing a food sensitivity. So any results that are based on analysis of the magnesium level are not going to be accurate specifically for its food sensitivity. So I've, I, have not, I did not find anything in the research, research which would indicate that you would be able to identify that you have specific sensitivities to specific foods. What it could do is tell you if your body has been in the state of stress over the last three months, which could be a result of having food sensitivities, but it could also be as a result of many other things like daily stress, relationship stress, work stress. So again, I would not spend your money on any hair analysis test for food sensitivities. Now we're going on to blood tests. And this is interesting too, because this is a blood test, blood test for the antibody IgG. And this is the antibody, which is a molecule released by your immune system in response to foreign invaders. And uh, when you have a food allergy, that immediate reaction to your food, like a peanut allergy, the antibody that is produced is called IgE. And the reaction of IgE is fast, right away. IgG, the reaction is slower. It can happen within hours, days, even three to seven days out from the initial exposure, from the exposure to that food, which is why food sensitivities are so much harder to identify than food allergies because you're looking at um, what are the foods within the last four to seven days that I've been eating and it's really hard to pinpoint which of those foods have been causing your allergies let alone the foods that you've been eating for weeks and months and years. So the blood test for IgG is a very, um, you know, it's an attractive test. It makes sense. And um, what I did is I did a food sensitivity test for myself and I wanted to show you the results. So this one here was done with the Meridian Valley Lab. And if you're listen to, listening to this, I'm going to describe this as much as I can and also show it to the screen for the viewers. And what you can see here is that they tested many, many, many different kinds of foods. I think for this one, I tested something like um, 300 or 600 different kinds of foods. So there's various different foods that are tested. They range from dairy to meat to vegetables. They even test spices, right? all sorts of things. And what they do for this particular test, and again, there's different kinds of blood tests. It's too much to all of them. But this is one that I've seen quite often is where they'll say, you're either, you have a low sensitivity to it, right? You have a high sensitivity, so low sensitivity to it, low amount of antibodies are being made in response to that food. And what they do is they take a blood sample and they, um, again, they're looking at um, the blood and they're exposing the blood to the food components, for example, the protein of the foods, 
and seeing if the blood, uh, if there are molecules that are in the blood that are reacting to and binding to those food components. Um, trying to see, like for example, it's like a surrogate for what would happen in your blood, right? And so they're saying, okay, if you're if you see a lot of antibody response to the food, then you're in the um, high food sensitivity. If you see a moderate response, like a moderate amount, you're in the moderate. And if you see a low amount of antibody to your foods, you have it's a, it's a low chance of you having a food sensitivity. What you need to know is that it is normal to make antibodies to foods, even those that you do not have sensitivities to. There's always a little bit of food getting into your body, and your body is always reacting a little bit to it. That is normal. It's called um, oral tolerance, right? We have a tolerance to a certain amount of those foods. It's when that amount either goes up because you have increased intestinal permeability or leaky gut or the immune system becomes overactivated, or that amount, that normal 1% goes up of, um, because your digestion has gone down, your digestive power has gone down, and your ability to digest your food has gone down. So you're having more undigested food particles going into your body rather than fully digested food particles, and that's more likely to cause a food sensitivity. So all you need to know is that when you suffer to fully trust and fully rely on the tests, on the results of this test, basically what they're told is to definitely avoid everything that falls within the red, the avoid category. And, you know, you consider minimizing, avoiding or reducing the amount of everything in the moderate category and being okay with eating everything that's in the low category or the no, like no IgG sensitivity. And what I have to say is that I, I did the IgG sensitivity and the elimination diet, which I will talk about next. And what I can tell you is that it was pretty, pretty accurate, actually. It told me that I had a very high problem with dairy, right? Everything dairy, almost everything dairy was on the very high list. I had a problem with egg white and egg yolk. They separated the two up, but more with the egg white than the egg yolk, Okay. And then it was like, you know, a little bit here and there. I had a, you know, I had a sensitivity to almonds, very high sensitivity to almonds, uh, fairly high sensitivity to kiwi, and just here and there, um, you know, ginger, mustard, vanilla. So you see that, you, you know, some food, um, some high food sensitivities based on this test to um, very healthful foods. And the thing is that, uh, what the research shows is that, um, and there was one research that was done looking at this, is that if you do the food sensitivity test and then you and then you do the elimination diet, which is you eliminate those foods for at least four weeks and then you reintroduce them, um, the people who were doing the study um, had reactions to about 60% of those foods. The other foods did not cause any reactions in their bodies using very detailed questionnaires and physical exams. These were foods, so 40% of these were the foods in the avoid, like the high sensitivity um, kind of uh, um, category for them. So for example, you know, um, when I did my elimination diet, I did not have a sensitivity to kiwis and ginger and horseradish, but I did have it to dairy. So the IgG test, the blood test, on its own, is going to cast a wide net. It's going to tell you everything that you're possibly sensitive to. 
but it it's uh, it's it's like catching too much. Some of those things um, your body may be reacting to on a, on a, at a certain level, but it's actually not causing a problem for you and for your health. And so um, you might end up on an overly restricted diet. That could happen if you rely entirely on the IgG blood test. So the very, very best approach, according to the research, and also according to my experience, my personal experience, and the experience of many women that I have worked with in my health programs, is the elimination diet. The elimination diet is the uh, only diet that has been shown in research to be the most accurate, most accurate for identifying food allergies, food intolerances, and food sensitivities. And the research that I'm going to direct you to is this one. Um, there's many studies, but I thought I would give you um, a summary study that you can look up if you want. This one is called Diagnostic Elimination Diets and Oral Food Provocation, published in the Journal of Chemistry and Immunology Allergy in 2015. And for those of you who are really into the science and are listening to this, you want to search up PubMed ID number 2602286. And basically, what this talks about is that the elimination diet has been studied in various different conditions. It's been studied in um, uh, dermatitis. It's been studied in psoriasis. It's been studied in um, inflammatory bowel diseases, in um, autoimmune conditions, um, is, uh, esophagitis is emophilia, which is this weird condition that is gaining like a lot. It's, it's increasing in how many people are being affected by it. And these, uh, and even with allergies, they food allergies. They talk about how the skin prick test is not as reliable, and the blood test for IgE is not as reliable as the, the elimination diet. And the cool thing about the elimination diet is that it is free. You don't actually have to pay anything to do it. The key, though, is that you have to do it properly. It is very, very hard. It, you know, it is something that. It's like any skill, any procedure, you need to do it properly. So what does it involve? Um, first of all, there's different kinds of elimination diets. There's ones where you eliminate the top six foods that have been shown to cause food sensitivities or inflammation, all the way through to what's called the comprehensive elimination diet, where you're eliminating for a short period of time, right? And then there's the introduction, reintroduction of the food. So this is not a forever diet. And this is important to know, this is not a forever diet. That would be very unhealthy. This is a, I want to identify my food sensitivities diet. And so for a short period of time, a minimum of four weeks, I'm going to eliminate these foods that are um, what they, they are most likely to produce food sensitivities because they have very complex proteins. So for example, um, cow's milk has a protein in it that is much more complex, more complicated in structure than human milk. So it is more likely to cause a food allergy, food sensitivity. Um, and sheep's milk and um, uh, goat's milk have less complex proteins, but they're still more complex than human milk. And the same thing for egg protein, right? And even bananas have protein and the protein in a banana is different than the protein in humans. So again, if you're having problems with your digestive power, and you're getting those undigested proteins that are then with combined with the leaky gut or increased intestinal permeability or slipping into your body, you could actually develop a food sensitivity to something as benign, you know, as healthy as a banana. And the thing is, you want to identify what's causing your food sensitivities now 
And by eliminating those food sensitivities and working to heal your gut, healing your leaky gut, healing your digestive power, then when you reintroduce those foods, hopefully those food sensitivities, some of them will have improved, right? Because your digestion is stronger. And so the food is being broken down more, less food is getting in through that leaky gut, which is now healing. Um, And then you're left with what I call the primary food sensitivities, which are food sensitivities that no matter what you do may stick with you for life. For me, that's dairy. I have this um, perpetual problem with dairy. No matter what I do, I have an intolerance to it. I have a sensitivity to it. And that can happen with age. You can acquire it with time and it can be genetic and it can be a combination of both. So the elimination diet is you eliminate the food for four weeks minimum, and then you reintroduce a food one at a time and you see the reaction of your body to that food. You have to use a tracker of your body's responses all the way from your top of your head down to the bottom of your toes, from the brain all the way to the gut, to the um, to your joints, to your muscles. You, you, know, you want to make sure you're really tracking those things because food sensitivities can show up everywhere in your body. And then as you track your response to the foods, introducing one week at a time, because remember, it takes four to seven days sometimes for that food sensitivity to show up, then you can determine what foods you have sensitivities to or not. It is more time and labor intensive for sure. And um, some people are very tempted to not do the elimination diet and instead do something like the IgG test, um, the blood test. And what I would say is that the blood test is not a standalone unless you want to end up on a very restricted diet. It can be used in combination with the elimination diet in that you know, during that elimination phase, you want to eliminate those like, you know, um, very high likelihood foods. And then also take a look at your personalized sensitivities for those weird ones like the banana and the kiwi, right? And eliminate those foods for that time as well. And then um, reintroduce them over time. Or what you can do is just eliminate the foods that are in your avoid list. So for example, even though gluten is um, one of the key ones that they recommend everyone eliminate, no matter what. Um, Let's say you do this test. And for me, I I did not have sensitivity to gluten, right? So I could have said, you know what, during the elimination diet, I'm not going to eliminate gluten because my blood IgG test told me that I don't have a problem with gluten. Um, So that's one thing you could do. However, I was like, you know what, I only want to do this elimination diet once you know, maybe a few times in the lifetime, like at different stages of my life, like pre-menopause, post-menopause, because it does change over time. But I don't want to have to do it again uh, because I did it wrong the first time. So, um, you know, ideally you do it really well once. Um, you learn how to do it. You learn about your body. You identify your food sensitivities. And when you can eliminate your food sensitivities, it is amazing how good you can feel. For me, My skin cleared up, uh, my gut like normalized. I didn't have, like I I used to have irritable bowel syndrome. I didn't have that anymore. I didn't have acne or dermatitis anymore, which I was getting at the time. I found it way easier to um, have my ideal weight. Like now I don't really have to, I don't eat for calories. You know, I eat for gut health and hormone balance, um, which is a way more satisfying uh, way to live. Um, And I respect my food sensitivities. And, you know, I'm always looking at them and saying, okay, like I had a sensitivity to this food. Maybe now I can reintroduce it and see how I do. And I recheck it every three to six months to see if maybe things have changed since then. 
So I hope you found this useful. If you've been joining along, I see I have had some viewers and you have any questions, please feel free to put your questions in the comments. Um, and what we have done today is we've discussed seven tests for food sensitivities and trying to determine if they were accurate or not and whether they're worth spending your money on. So of course, there are pros and cons to every test. Um, and there's the time factor involved. There's the effort factor involved. You want to keep all of those in mind. What I do want to say is that I'm uh, releasing a, a book called The Personalized Diet Solution, where I have integrated um, my uh, use of the elimination diet and my findings on the research um, and included a whole bunch of guides and weekly trackers and recipes you can use during the elimination phase so that you don't feel deprived as you're doing those four weeks uh, of the elimination phase and onwards. And um, really great tips on how to proceed. And if you're interested, please reach out. I'd be happy to provide that for you. It is an incredible resource. I wish I had had something like this. When I did my elimination diet, it would have taken so much of the guesswork out. Um, I would avoided, have avoided so many mistakes that I made, and, which prolonged the process unnecessarily. Um, so if you want a quick go-to guide for your personalized diet solution, please um, leave your comments and I will send you the link. And another benefit is that I've integrated other um, research-backed strategies for optimizing your nutrition, including um, proper food prep methods that will decrease the likelihood of you experiencing a food sensitivity. So I hope you found this useful. Have a wonderful rest of your day, evening, or night. If you enjoyed this, please save, subscribe, and share it with somebody else who is craving root cause solutions for their health concern. I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast, Wild Wisdom with Dr. Patricia Mills. If you like this podcast, please take the time to like and subscribe. And please feel free to leave any comments and look below for the contact information if you want to connect with me directly. Thank you. And I hope you have a wonderful day, evening or night. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for a professional care doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided with the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you are looking for help in your journey, it is important that you seek out a qualified health practitioner. If you would like to work with Dr. Patricia for her expert health transformation guidance, please email her at info at drpatriciamills.com to book a discovery call. You can also find Dr. Patricia on Instagram at Dr. Patricia Mills and Facebook at Wild Wisdom for Women with Dr. Patricia Mills MD. For access to all of Dr. Patricia's educational videos and more amazing perks, consider becoming a Patreon member. Links are in the description of this episode. It is important to have an expert in your corner that can help you make the changes you crave, especially when it comes to your health. Thank you.